just in case I need them in tissues? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I always have tissue. <laughs> just from my experience, like every one of these. That oh, that's a great idea. I didn't even think about that. It's funny because the one thing I look for when I walk into a room is tissue, like with the patients. You know, it's like, okay, we always have to have the box of tissue because you never know. So. Oh, yeah. And then your line of work, I'm sure, probably happens more than my line of work. Um, okay. and tell us about where you grew up, went to college, medical school, and where you trained for residency and fellowship, and um, then maybe where your career has taken you since then, and what and where your position is now. Okay, so I am a medical oncologist, and uh, I specialize in breast cancer, and I run the clinical breast cancer program here at UC Davis. I grew up in um, El Paso, Texas, which is always really surprising when people ask. Um, my parents had immigrated there from southern China, and that's where I grew up. I got a chance to go to Stanford for college, so I left Texas and went uh, to Stanford as an undergraduate, and it's there I met my now husband, who was also uh, studying at, at Stanford. But I came back to Texas to go to medical school. Um, that was in San Antonio. And I did my internal medicine residency training there and my fellowship training there. And I stayed a couple years there as a junior faculty working in, in breast cancer. And, um, you know, we, we interviewed. Initially, Mark looked at a job out here in UC Davis. And I, I wasn't even thinking about moving um, from from Texas back to California, but um, it soon turned into an interview for two positions, obviously, mm -hmm. and uh, it just turned out they were looking for someone with an interest in breast cancer, and um, and Mark, my husband really wanted um, to come back to California at that time, and I think in retrospect it was a good move for us. At the time it was very difficult because I felt like I was leaving my family, my, my parents, you know, who were getting older and uh, all of my siblings at the time lived there, so the kids were very close to their cousins. So it was not an easy decision, but I, I think it, it, it uh, was one of those compromises in, in marriage that one makes. Mm -hmm. And how long did your, because your dad had a, 
a grocery store. Right? Yes, yeah. yes. So I grew up, my, my parents immigrated. My mom never went to school. She never had a chance to go to school at all. My dad, um, who now lives with me um, uh, and reminisces a lot about his childhood, had um, somewhere between a third to sixth grade education. And at the time in that part of China, if you wanted to go further, you had to have the means. You had to have money to send your, your mm -hmm. kids to school beyond that. Otherwise, you were expected to work. So um, my dad, when he immigrated here, eventually um, owned his own grocery store. And we had a home behind the grocery store, neighborhood grocery store. And so that was where I grew up. I mean, he bought that store in when I was three. Um, and they retired in 1997, so they had the store for about 30 years. They were in their 70s by the time they sold and, re and, and retired. Mm -hmm. And you have three? Three older siblings. sisters, so there were four, four of us girls. Uh -huh. And what are they doing? So my oldest sister, um, who's actually a generation older than I am, so she's 14 years older than I am, um, and she... Um, was pretty much a stay-at-home mom. I think she dabbled in some real estate from time to time, but has been a stay-at-home mom. My other sister is a pharmacist and has worked um, in both um, the VA and also industries. She's now still with industry. And then my um, the sister, who's a year older than I am, um, has been in, I would say, IT. for. She worked for one company her entire career, mm -hmm. and she took an early retirement from, from them. Um, about two years ago. So you're the only doctor? I am the only physician, although my sister um, who's a is a pharmacist, and so so we have that kind of bent in the family. Oh, okay. And so when you were in Texas, you had your oldest child, Jessica. We actually had both, 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 um, both Jessica and Paul in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. And Paul doesn't remember because he was only four when we um, moved out here, but Jessica, who grew up in, who was born and grew up in San Antonio, San Antonio had, a, a, the rest of Texas has a very different, um, I would say, spirit than El Paso. El Paso was the, this West Texas town, bordered New Mexico and Mexico, and um, there was just a lot more Texas history, Texas pride, I think, in the rest of the state, which I, I wasn't exposed to when I went to school. So when when my kids were there in school, I mean, they learned all about Texas history. They, they sang all these songs having to do with Texas pride and Texas freedom and Texas independence, which I honestly was never taught when I was growing up. But, but yes, they were both, both Texans, Jessica at the time, extremely proud to be from Texas. And then, of course, she, she spent most of her, the rest of her formative years in California now, I think, you know, is in love with New York. Uh, so. Fascinating. Um, and so you guys came out here, and you took a job in oncology doing breast cancer um, treatment and research, mm -hmm. and Mark um, as the program director yes. of the licensing program. Yes. And then um, at what point did John come along? John came along in uh, May of 2004, and um, you know, embarrassingly for two doctors, was you know was a, a, a surprise, not not planned, but a really um, you know sort of wonderful, unexpected surprise at that mm -hmm. point in our lives. So um, he was born a month before I turned 40. <laughs> oh wow! And how much of a, a space was there between the, your second one, Paul, and John? Eight years. Wow. Eight years. 
bringing new definition to the term older brother. <laughs> yes, um, ve very much so. I mean, it was almost like he had, I wouldn't say two other parents, but you know, there was, uh, because of the age difference, there was really never any um, sort of sibling rivalry or, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the, both Jessica and Paul really took it on themselves to kind of look after him. I mean, mm -hmm. Jessica was a really she was 14 just like a teenager doing her own thing but still very helpful and I think Paul is just his personality too is just very um, just always that big brother just an amazing big brother to, to John mm -hmm. so tell me a little bit about John I understand um, he was a expert skier uh, he was a he was a great skier Mark and I were just reminiscing about it this weekend where um, you know, he was very particular about certain things. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't say he was like an easygoing kid, although he had a great sense of humor, but it shocked us that he loved skiing. And I think the, you know, that, that it wasn't too cold or that, you know, um, you know, he's tired or the wind is blowing or something you would think, because, you know, it's not always perfect conditions, right, when you, when you ski. But I think we concluded that it was really something that um, he knew that Paul loved so much. So as we took him out there when he was little and he skied around with Paul and the bunny, the bunny slopes, he just had a fun, great time. I think Paul made it just this really fun, great time for him. And we all did enjoy it. I mean, we all, we all enjoyed getting out there. Um, but he was, um, just had a great sense of humor. Um, you know, was a little bit impish, you know, had, had could, could play tricks um, in, a, in a fun way. So I remember very clearly he went to a friend's birthday party and got, um, oh gosh, it's like a noise putty. Mm -hmm. So it looked like Play-Doh, but as you put it back into the container, it made this basically fart sound, you know, as you're putting it in. And, and so he said, oh, you know, mom, I, I, I don't know how to put this back in. Could you help me? And I'm putting it in and it's making these really embarrassing sounds. And he's, he's just dying laughing. <laughs> and you could tell it was just, you know, Paul looked over and said, John, you know, like shocked, but not really shocked. And so he just had a great sense of humor. Um, he was an avid, avid reader. He loved to read um, and he loved, the, his school would have book fairs mm -hmm. twice a year maybe even more, I can't remember now. They always coincided with that uh, parent-teacher conference week. Mm -hmm. So we, you could go to the book fair and get books bef you know, as we waited to, to have the assigned meeting with his teacher. And he just loved reading. I mean, he, he usually picked out books on science. And then in second grade, probably his last book fair, he picked out this whole series on the Titanic mm -hmm. that really looked like it was for someone that was maybe in fifth or sixth grade but uh, it was a whole se it was a series of three or four books on the Titanic and um, uh, just really and that's what he was reading um, mm -hmm. when so he died uh, so um, reader and skier and how old was he when he started skiing when he first went out to the bunny slopes we probably took him when he was uh, maybe like a few times when he was three but really like more regularly when he was four mm -hmm. And by the time he was seven, he was on the ski, ski team? Yeah, he oh. was, that was his second year. So his first full year on the ski team, he was six. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, this was the second year when he, when he fell and died. It was the beginning of his second year, full year on the team. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, 
you skied every single weekend practically, and at the time we still had a ski week. So then there was a week in February where you were there, you know, um, seven to ten days skiing. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of skiing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I still remember, I don't know if you remember this, but Anna and I getting on the, our daughter getting on the, the lift, the lift, and asking you where he was, and you turned around and pointed to the mountain, and there was this whole line of kids yeah. flying down the mountain. Yeah. And, this, and I think it was snowing out, too. I mean, it was I like remember really that, because you <coughs> didn't have goggles. Right. I remember <laughs> that. And, and, I had to give uh, Anna for a little bit, because she oh, had forgotten her goggles. that was it. <laughs> and I think we happened to, coincidentally, we were going to ride the same chair. I didn't even recognize you until you right. said something. Yeah. Right. I we remember We kind of looked that. at each other, and yeah. I looked at your, yeah. you had like a some sort of name badge on yeah. or something Yeah, like probably that. our um, our pass. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's, it's pretty funny. Yeah. So so tell me about what happened on, uh, it was, I think, December 20th, 2011. So, yeah, the, the 20th was the day, it was a Tuesday, it was the day he died. He actually fell on the 18th, and that was the second day of the ski season, the mm-hmm. team season, so... We'd gone up on Friday, he skied half a day on Saturday, and I think the plans were either half or full day on Sunday, because the conditions weren't great in terms of it was, um, you know, not great coverage, um, and I think they were just starting out, right? Um, so um, he'd had a great first day, um, actually had this very... Um, really wonderful coach. I mean, a coach I think that was really well regarded um, and you could tell interacted really well with kids and really fostered a lot of, you know, sort of confidence and, and, and really connected with the kids. I could tell that just after um, a day and a half. Um, so he was very positive. Uh, we went out, met, met the team. Um, there was limited Places you could ski, meaning there was, I'm trying to remember, maybe two or three lifts that were open, again, because the whole mountain wasn't open. And, because um, it was dry. Because right? it was dry. Yeah. You know, there wasn't great coverage. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, as typically, you would, we would go to the meeting place, they'd go off with their team, uh, I would meet them back, you know, meet, you would meet them back for lunch, you would take them back out in the afternoon, typically, and then you'd meet them at, at the end of the day, which was typically three, and then you could ski around longer if you were, weren't totally exhausted. And um, so on that Sunday, which was the 18th, he, um, I saw him actually uh, a, a few times because there really weren't that many people. I think it was mainly ski team and family. You know, I think the public wouldn't have necessarily come out for a day like a weekend like that yet. But I was uh, skiing with other ski team parents. These were actually grandparents of one of John's um, uh, teammates, and I got a call on my cell phone that. Um, John had been involved in an accident, sort of vague, and to meet them at this one spot, it was actually near the parking lot. And um, when I, you know, I raced over there, they wouldn't tell me anymore. And when I got there, there was a ambulance, and uh, they wouldn't let me go in where John was. They said they were working with him, but nobody told me what was happening. And I was asking, the coach wasn't there, the head of the ski team at some point was there, Ski Patrol was there, and um, I I thought um, all the times we had learned to ski, my biggest fear was someone running into the kids, you know, like another skier mm-hmm. or a snowboarder. So I thought maybe someone had run into him or maybe he had hit something like a rock or a tree. 
So when I asked, they said, well, he fell from the lift. And I thought, oh, well, like it's loading or unloading, right? Like, did he hurt his, twist an ankle, hurt his knee, something? I didn't, you know, it was a disconnect. Like, how come I can't go and go and see him, you know, like just be with him? Um, until they said, well, he, he fell off Lincoln and, um, you know, it was obvious that he was a lot um, more critical than I had anticipated and they, they wouldn't let me go in to see him in the, mm-hmm. in the emergency, in the, excuse me, in the, in the ambulance. And then, then the helicopter came in and they were trying to life flight him out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they knew that, ski patrol knew that I was a physician and I really wanted him to come to UC Davis um, but this is you know, Sugar Bowl, so it would have taken much longer, and they recommended going to Reno. That's where we ended up going. And, uh, you know, John never, um, he had such trauma in his head, he never woke up. And um, the neurosurgeon that I saw at um, the hospital in Reno at first was trying to convince me not to do anything, which now I can see, but at the time um, it was such a disconnect between, I, I just saw him, in fact, he and I rode up a lift together. His mm-hmm. coach had said, hey, John, where are you going? He said, this is my mom, and he rode up with us, and uh, we were just chatting about how wonderful it was to be out there, how lucky it was for us to do this. So I had seen him, and that was probably 20, 30 minutes before I got the call. Um, mm-hmm. So I think in my head it was this disconnect with, <laughs> here's my seven-year-old giggling, vibrant son, we just had dinner the night before. We had this nice breakfast. We, we, he's just he was just skiing a little while ago. What do you what do you mean? Um, and I remember that interaction. I, I, I you know there was very little, I think, compassion that I got from that that physician, that mm-hmm. neurosurgeon. Um, it seemed very technical mm-hmm. to me, um, and maybe some some impatience by why I didn't understand that. I think what he thought was was futile. Like they put some drains in, um, and then there were a, a bunch of other physicians. And I, I think we knew the end result, um, but you know, obviously wanted to try something, give it a try, do something, mm-hmm. just to relieve the pressure, see if he, if anything happened, and and I actually gave time for my family to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, his sister was. Um, on the East Coast, she was working in Boston at the time, and I think she was scheduled to come out anyway. But instead of coming to Davis, you know, a friend of ours picked her up and drove her all the way to Reno um, to be there. My dad came out, my sisters came out. I think it just gave time. Mark's Mark's family came out, um, and then he, um, you know, he passed away on on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, what were the the days? And weeks like for you? How did you get through the next days to weeks? Um, honestly, they all. Um, I I would say when I look back at it, Paul, it seemed just so surreal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I, it was like just really um, disorienting. Very um, much like, am I in a dream? Am I in a nightmare? Am I going to wake up from this? This is, you know, because I mean. Here's this little kid that's been a huge part of your life, um, and um, still so young that you're always thinking, 
who's going to pick him up? What does he have to do? What are all his activities? Those kinds of things. And so I think it was very disorienting. I, I really believe that the, the one thing that kept us going was Paul still being home and in high school and um, I don't know if needing us is the right word, but having someone that we had to still take care of. Um, this was obviously during the holidays, but really shortly thereafter when his high school opened, you know, was, was back in session and they had offered him time off and I think he wanted to just go back to school, which I think I understand. But, um, you know, we stayed in our carpool. We, we, we just wanted to support him. Mm-hmm. Although, and Paul and I have talked about this, you know, I, I, I think even at that time and now I worry that you know, I was just so consumed with grief. I was just so overcome with grief. I don't know if that I was there emotionally for Paul. I mean, I think we tried to all as a family mm-hmm. go through it together. Um, and what, well, so you mentioned just overwhelmed with grief. Um, did you have any other predominant emotion in that time? I felt really numb, really, really numb. Um, and I felt, um, yeah, I think I felt very, um, uh, despondent and kind of just rudderless. I've just never been in a position where I just didn't know how to, I don't, I don't even want to say the word get out of it. I didn't even know how to head in any direction, Mm -hmm. move in any direction whatsoever. But I think that you know, every day, once Paul's um, school had opened back up after the holidays, I think every day having to say, oh, I, you know, we need to get Paul to school, at least to the the pickup place if it wasn't our turn to drive that day. And, um, you know, people were wonderful. We had this, you know, meal arrangement um, where people just brought us meals constantly. And, um, so even just saying, hey, this is what we're having for dinner, I think was, was in a way of sort of orienting us. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, don't even, I don't even wouldn't call it orientation. That's probably too strong of a word. But it's um, and it would, just a lot of days of um, really feeling a sea, you know, just really mm-hmm. lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what were other things that people did that were particularly helpful? Both during that time and, yeah. and after that. You know, I weeks. I think honestly, Paul, just like you, it was just being there. Mm-hmm. I, I can't and it wasn't like there was anything people said that would that sort of unlocked this mystery of how you get through mm-hmm. this kind of life altering tragedy. You mm-hmm. know, there was nothing that anyone said to me that was like, Oh, uh huh, I see that. I think it was just being there. I think, um, you know, we we remarkably met people. I you know there was a woman that befriended me. Who I think I've told you the backstory. She was not my patient, but I had met her as a second opinion. And she was a young lady who was um, dealing with metastatic breast cancer, and just came and saw me as a second opinion. And I had met her and her husband at the time, and it turned out it was about maybe ten months before John fell and died 
and she and her husband brought us, they had signed up for a Christmas Eve dinner. And they brought this amazing, like, roasted leg of lamb kind of Christmas dinner. Amazing. We had vegetarians at the house at the time. They, they brought vegetarian. I mean, they just um, an amazing meal. And then she kept, her name was Ann Page, but she kept dropping notes, um, leaving little gifts, um, really being very supportive. And, uh, you know, it just took me a while to get in my head that that's who she was and that she was dealing with her own issues of metastatic breast cancer. But I think it's, um, when I look back, just a series of people who came back into our lives that we had known at some point for the kids or brand new into our lives, um, who were just there to support us. Um, and really, when I look back, the most, over and over again, the most, uh, I think, helpful was probably just just being there, not even asking to talk or um, being listened to, but just someone being there was was uh, was very important. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you developed any other strategies for getting through that time, or you know, even getting through the years? Never mind. Yeah. Like the weeks after. I um, I journaled. I think more th more for more for just a way that I could privately express you know, my feelings. Um, Mark and I started seeing a therapist almost immediately, I think really because I felt so, so paralyzed, so paralyzed with, with grief as, you know, I felt like I just didn't even know which direction to go. I think that's helped um, us. And, um, and it made me just um, think about a lot of people gave us books. They sent us books, gave us books, you know, left books at our door. And uh, Mark and I had very different reactions to it. I think he he sort of ate up the books. And I remember I would I would see a book, I would turn around to read about it, and almost always it started with ten years ago when my son, you know, blank died. I never thought, and then I'd look at another one. It would say eight years ago, or you know, two decades ago, and it felt to me so. Um, so far away from where I was at the time. Mm -hmm. I think at the time I, I needed something that was not immediate, but I, I, I remember reading these things and thinking, I, I can't, I don't even know where I'll be five years from now. I can't imagine being alive five years from now the way I feel. Mm -hmm. So that part wasn't helpful to me. Yet, yet my husband could look at it and see that perspective, so we just both approached it very differently. But I think just journaling, I think spending um, spending time together when it, you know, to support each other, because I think we had different times that we would grieve in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in many ways it brought us closer together because of this, this sort of trauma. Um, and I, we, I never went, and I, I think Mark went briefly he had some counseling sessions outside through like hospice bereavement groups. We never went to a, um, a parent support group. I don't, it just didn't feel mm -hmm. like the right thing to do yeah. for us. Um, and we felt like we were seeing our therapist quite often at that time. I think it was at least once a week. Um, so those were some of the things that just, just helped us.
And, and going back to the, the books, yeah, because uh, I'd never heard about the books, yeah. Um, so they were predominantly books about grieving and loss. And yeah, there was a lot about grieving, loss, but also very specifically losing losing kids, mm -hmm. you know, losing a, a, a child. Mm -hmm. um, there was like when good things happen to bad people, which I had read before when very good friends of ours during trainings had a son who, who died of cancer, you know, when he was three. It was just really tragic, and I remember feeling so depressed after that, um, that he was diagnosed, he got better, and then he had a relapse and, and died. And, um, uh, you know, was 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 very hard and very disturbing, certainly much more so for the parents. But I remember someone gave me that book, and I'd read it, you know, and I thought, oh, okay, I, I you know, I, I could take home a few things. But I think when, when it was just so personal, I think, Paul, I just felt like I can't, none of, none of the advice for me at the time rang true. I, I think that, you know, now it's been over, over nine years, right? I don't know if I could look, go back and look there. We have, we have shelf full of these books mm -hmm. um, at our home. So you did, so you never really ended up reading them? You know, there were a couple that I would say that I skimmed, but no, nothing, mm -hmm. nothing ever really mm -hmm. spoke to me. Mm -hmm. And did you start yoga before John's death or after? No, it was it was it was our friend Anne was mm -hmm. my friend Anne who brought me there, probably not quite a year after John died. I think she just kind of knew something. She just kind of innately knew about the timing, mm -hmm. so she took me to my first class, um, and I think she had found a community there to help her deal with things when she moved to Davis. I hope I get this right. I think when, when she moved to Davis, I believe shortly thereafter, she was diagnosed with her recurrence, her breast cancer recurrence. And, and so the exact timing of when she started really going to yoga or, or um, I, I'm not exactly sure, but she took me there specifically. And um, I, I was just going with her, it was just her, you know, Anne and I on, on Sundays. And somehow it morphed into, she asked me one time, well, do you think you could make it to like a five o'clock class on a Friday? Could you leave work a little early? And I think Mark and I were carpooling and I asked him and he said, well, like, yeah, do you mind if I kind of, you know, join you guys too? Huh. I thought, sure. And then he got, um, you know, he got interested in it as well. And I think a lot of it was, it was just, I think it, uh, it allowed you to, focus on something that was physically maybe strenuous, but it was actually mentally strenuous. It's very hard mm -hmm. to explain it. Um, and I think that mental focus allowed me to, the word, it's not really process, but it really gave me some time to just, to just be in this very small space. Mm -hmm. and everything led back to John. And I think what I'm trying to say is, I, I think when we came back to work and you're dealing with all the things you do at work, meetings or deadlines or whatever it is that you're doing, uh, preparation for clinics, I think it took us, a, you know, for good or for other reasons, it takes your mind off of John and your grieving. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think your, your body, your heart wants 
to remain with John and you're grieving. And I think the, the yoga just took you away from the work and you just sort of focused on this other part, really spiritual part of your life more so than the, than the, than the physical. So it was always a very emotional experience. Um, I think probably for the first year or two, there was never a class I, that I didn't go to that I didn't just cry or sob at. Um, During the class? During, usually sometimes right after, mm -hmm. right after when the class mm -hmm. was over. I think a lot of it was dependent on the teacher, too, mm -hmm. and there was oh, a very special teacher mm -hmm. um, that was there, who's our first yoga teacher, who we're still friends with today. Um, so yeah, that, that became, I would say, a big part of helping me heal. And I've, I've had over the years, people have asked me about that, because I never did it before. And it's hard to explain, I think, unless someone kind of... Um, maybe um, has practiced and, and knows. And there's different types of practices, of course, so it's nothing like secretive or anything, but it's just, I think, I think many people work through a lot of things they're going through that you're not even aware of what they're going through mm -hmm. with that kind of, it's, it's like a meditative purpose, but there's a physical part of it as well, but there's a really meditative purpose to it, which I think was, was very helpful. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is, Probably too broad and a question, but how how has his death, John's death, sort of changed how you look at the world? I mean, is this just so much that you can't even describe it, or do you oh, able yeah. articulate? You know, I I think um, as hard as it was to accept it, I I do remember some of these things from some of the books. It's that. Um, you know, uh, an Eastern, a very Buddhist way of looking at life and, and sorrow and grief is that it just always happens, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, why does it happen? It's why not? Why aren't you always experiencing it? Because all these things happen. And I think I intellectualized it at the time when you saw it in a book or you know, some kind of reading. It didn't make you feel any better. You still, I felt still awful because John mm -hmm. had died. But I think that um, I understand it more as, uh, as a part of life. Um, I think that even though I'm in the world of oncology, where I've seen these things happen to everybody, to many people for years and years and years, old and young and you know, rich and poor, educated, not educated, I think that um, I really experienced that kind of um, feeling of loss of control, you know, that I talk to patients about, you know, one day your life is go seemingly going along and the next day someone tells you you have cancer, right, and it's, you just feel like you're out of control now, you need this and you need surgery and you may need chemotherapy and you may need to do this, and so your whole life is just, you know, spun out from, from your control. I think I can, I can really appreciate that more um, and to realize that it happens to a lot of people. Um, I think that um, I thought I had empathy, but I think I really do have a lot of empathy for people who are going through struggles like that in which they feel like, um, you know, sometimes you just want a little bit of control, you want to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's, yeah, I think that's, 
what what has kind of changed in the last mm-hmm. you know, nine plus years. Mm-hmm. And so is that the biggest impact in how you practice medicine and oncology? Is it is it the having that even greater amount of empathy? Or, I, or are there yeah, other things that have I, changed as well? I think it's 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 empathy in the day to day practice. I think coming back to work, um, it made me, and I think my husband too, we've talked about this, I think it made you kind of rethink what you really want to do, what you really want to focus on. So I think sometimes part of our jobs are so much mundane things. And uh, sometimes, as you know, um, meetings are things that are just non-productive or it's it's, um, not really contributing to what you want to do and I'm not trying to to say do only what you want to do in a very selfish way but I think in a good way it helps you to reframe um, what you want to do what you want to spend your time on I've heard that many years from patients who say um, in a paraphrase you know uh, after I got this diagnosis it just really made me think about what I want to do for the rest of my life and did I want to retire early and should my husband and I start traveling early or do I want to do this? And I, I, I get it. I think it's sometimes a, I wouldn't say a wake-up call, but it does frame your life in a different mm-hmm. way when you realize that you know nothing is permanent and, and that um, there's a lot of things we can't control. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so speaking of things we can't control, the pandemic, I mean, has been pretty difficult for mm-hmm. a lot of people. Did what you went through and what you're still going through, has that made it like a little easier in some odd way or or is it, do you do you do you feel like you have a different perspective than you would have had otherwise? That's a great question, Paul. I I don't, you know, I don't know since we've never lived through something like this. Um I do know that um I miss the community that we had with yoga, <laughs> very much so. I don't know if we'll ever be able to go back to it the way the way we practiced typically. Um, and of course, we can do the virtual or the online. I think it's very different than the community you form with people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's actually been hard uh, to adjust to because I think I was still feeling that the practice was helping me. Um, I think that... Um, my husband and I have spent lots of time together before when we were off after John died. Of course, we were in a different frame of mind than during the pandemic, but I think that maybe that laid a good foundation for all that kind of togetherness, even though you're working uh, now. Um, I think I have patience. I've had more patience during the pandemic than I think I thought I would, but whether or not that had to do with our experience with John, I don't know. I think just sort of waiting it out and, and um, you know, not having that impatience that I think I would have had before. Mm-hmm. Although I, th- I think a year ago, I in my head, whether it was just me trying to tell myself that or not, I really felt like, oh, it would be over with in a few weeks to months at the most, you know, not, mm-hmm. wouldn't be, we wouldn't be here a year later. I don't think I, th- I thought of that. But yeah, I think it just gives me a perspective that, um, Many things can happen, and uh, you know, your your family, the health of your family, being together is is important. Mm-hmm. 
What are some of the ways that you guys have found to remember John and yet keep moving forward? So, um, you know, we've had some really wonderful friends and neighbors, um, and uh, there's a tree, as you know, really close to our home, which is on this bike path that um, all of us frequently bike or run by uh, from our home. So the tree was put up in the spring of 2012, so it's almost um, it's nine years mm -hmm. now. It's a beautiful tree. Um, there's a bench nearby, a playground, which is, um, I think, a wonderful way just to remember him. And we have a lot of his schoolmates say they still walk by and mm -hmm. they think of him, and people will leave little things all the time. Um, and then we worked um, with the resort to figure out what happened and how John fell when he was on the team. Um, and so we put some safety practices into the resort, um, which uh, has been adopted over the last you know, few years, which is very, um, I think it's comforting to see, you mm -hmm. know, so a real small thing are these seat targets that help you kind of sit back and, and they have all these safety plans about if a, if, a, if a kid is under a certain height, they have to ride with an adult in a certain way. So I think that, you know, as you know, Mark and I still ski um, and at the same resort, and I think that when we see those things, it always makes us think of John in a very bittersweet way, but also in a very positive way mm -hmm. um, to know that there are changes there. And of course, I think um, at our home, it's just, you know, it's just where John lived and breathed, you know. I mean, I can see, still see him and feel him out the biking along the bike paths. Um, there's a little memorial by his elementary school or at his elementary school. So I think there's these little things that we, that we are surrounded by that give us some, some comfort in terms of remembrance. Um, that I think is, is, is positive. Mm -hmm. um, I love the story of the owl box. Yeah. Yeah. So really, this is interesting. It really, it really goes back to, to Anne again and, mm -hmm. and Paige. So I don't, I don't know how much Mark has told you, but John used to just stare at things up in the sky. He could, he could point out planes while you're driving, of course, and he'd say, there's a plane, there's this, you know, so he was always looking at the sky and in the car. And uh, in Davis, you can see these hawks and they're low along like the power lines because okay. we're surrounded by these fields. And back then I didn't recognize them as hawks, you know. I'm driving and he's just showing me this bird on a, on a wire and I'm thinking they're owls. So, um, but coincidentally, so coincidentally and separate from that story, um, Anne's husband builds owl boxes and actually had had owl boxes in many of their residences, um, many of the homes they were in. And he built these owl boxes for the owls to mate and have their owlets. So after uh, John died, they they built a box for him, and it's still along that same uh, green belt where John's tree and his bench is. In fact, it's between his tree and his bench. It's in the backyard of another friend, a mutual friend who agreed uh, to have the owl box that was way up on a tree. Um, Anne's husband Sandy put it way up there. The really beautiful thing is that we were able to decorate it. John was able, I mean, Paul was able to write a note to John. We were all able to do that. 
and we can see it from the green belt. Um, and there are still owls, uh, not every single year, but many years that that are there. And in fact, in 2020, there were there were a ton of owlets there. And the reason we know is that we still keep in touch with a family where the owl box is, and they can they can tell when the owlets are there because they screech all night long and they can't sleep. <laughs> so they'll say the owls are here, or they'll even take pictures for us um, or a recording, and you can hear the screeches and I mean, it's very close to where we live, so in the evenings we'll walk over, and uh, this past year it was in June, July, which seemed a little later than normal. Sometimes it's in May, but June or July you can see them and you can hear them. Mm. Um, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful to see them on John's tree, these beautiful owls. Have they expressed any regrets about having these screeching <laughs> You know, they've there. been wonderful and really gracious to have it there. Um, sometime, and I, I've thanked them because they'll say, yeah, you know, we can't open the windows. You know, because sometimes in the evenings you can open your windows. In the summer it's really nice to let in this cool breeze. And they can't when the owlets are there <laughs> because they're just screeching all night. And if you go out on the greenbelt, you just can't miss it. They're they're just mm. screeching, um, and if there's several, which there were this year, it's incredible. It's this chorus of screeches for hours and hours oh, because wow. they're they're mm. nocturnal, but they're beautiful. They're just really beautiful to see. Mm. We well, have to let them know when they're yeah. there the next time. Yeah, yeah. So was it hard to go back to skiing? Did you did you contemplate just never going back to the mountains again? Yes. <laughs> after after John died, I think the first few thoughts I had was I'm never going to ski again the rest of my life and we have to get rid of this place, this condo. Uh, and we had bought the condo maybe a year and a half before this happened and really we had bought it because uh, our son Paul still loved to ski. John was going to be on the team we thought for the foreseeable, you know, uh, his, his, you know his, his youth and it would be really nice to have this home base um, instead of driving back and forth or staying at a hotel. So my first thoughts were, I'm never going to ski again, or I'm certainly not going to ski there, and I, we want, I just want to get rid of this place, um, this kind of place of sorrow. And someone had told us, look, don't, don't make any big decisions like that right now, which, was, of course, was great advice. And I think as, um, as we worked with um, the resort, and really there was a certain, there was a risk manager, um, her name is Nicole Lieberman, who really helped us, and I think really from a risk management point of view, made some really really bold overtures to us. Mm -hmm. was very open, was very truthful and transparent mm -hmm. and really helped us. And I think really that process, Paul, was really hard. I mean, I don't make, want, want to make it sound like, and then this happened, it all was really positive and there was just some really difficult and tense times there, but just eventually working through and, you know, fi trying to figure out as best what happened, trying to put you know, measures into place. I think it made us feel like um, this was a really positive, Sugar Bowl was a really positive place for John. I know that's where he fell and he died. I mean, he, he loved it. And I think uh, Paul loved it. And after John died, Paul wanted to go ski. You know, and I felt like I was barely <laughs> doing such a good job as a mother that the least I could do was like take him up there too. And I remember that first weekend we went back up was was incredibly hard. I don't. I'm not even sure how we how we did it to go back into the condo where the last time John was still alive. But Paul kept doing it, and I think. And did you ski that time? 
I think I did. Uh -huh. um, I think I did. And it was, you know, I, I would say part of it also was we were working through this invest investigation that the resort was doing to help us figure out what happened. And so there was a lot of eyewitnesses accounts, especially from kids, because um, that's really who was there. It was kids and sort of the families. I mean, and uh, people would say they saw this or that. And I, I remember just skiing around saying, is that possible? If they were here, could they actually see that? Or could you actually hear that? And it certainly wasn't because I think kids were lying, but we learned that you know, you're, you're trying to put a narrative in your head of what happened, right? So if you heard, well, John, John fell, did I remember this or that? Did I see this or that? Where was I when, when this happened? Because it turned out there was a lot of discrepancies. Anyhow, I, I think we went back a lot for John um, in terms of figuring out what happened, a lot for Paul because he wanted to keep doing what he was doing. And I think with time, it became something for me that was very positive because um, that's just where John, John also his, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I think even in Davis in day to day, even though I, that's where we all live, and, and as I said, you know, I think of John out in the green belt and doing things, and I think of him in the house. But when we get up there, it's just sort of like we're we're in this space and we're surrounded by things that cannot distract you anymore you know not like work or other friends or going out for a run or oh you know, my dad lives with me and we, we gotta do this gotta go grocery shopping it's like we're here we're we're here we're here to ski this is the condo these are all the runs that the kids went on and i think it just forces me to kind of deal with that all the time um which is a good thing mm -hmm. um makes me think about it again, makes me think of John again, um, go down the runs that he loved, um, and, and remember things. And and also, you know, before John was even born, I mean, we took Paul and Jessica there, and, and Paul loved um, to ski so many different places, and so there are just some good memories there. Um, so it, it, it's always very mixed to ski. You know, mm -hmm. part of it uh, is very freeing in a way because it, it, it just gets me to a place where the John's presence is just so overwhelming. Um, and you know, not a whole lot has changed about the, the set about the condo. Whereas I think in the last 10 years or so, you know, we've done different things to the house. You know, um, Paul graduated, went off to college, and he's living elsewhere now. And so things around some of the house has, has changed. And your dad is there. My dad is there. We repainted. I mean, there's all these kind of different things. Mm -hmm. But the condo is kind of like, I wouldn't say frozen in time, but it's 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 very much like mm -hmm. like when I was there with John that weekend mm -hmm. in many ways. So it's, it's and you, you really can't escape it because that's, that's who el who's ever really been there is John and, mm -hmm. and, and, and the kids. And so it's a very sacred place but it, it just makes you think of of the events it makes you think of his life it makes you think of so many things um, which I find I, I need to I need to go back there and do that and, and people do ask they'll say I can't believe you you still ski you know and I would just say I, I, I think it's just it's what John loved mm -hmm. um, makes me think of how much he loved it and uh, you know, way back when, when, when John fell, um, someone had, well, many people actually, including my father, had kind of asked, well, why didn't you sue the place, you know? 
and I remember thinking he just loved this place you know it was it was an accident I mean there were things I think that it, that should have been done could have been done to prevent it but um, you know that's a place he loved you know, he loved being there mm-hmm. and there's a run yeah there's a run used to be called um, mad dog and um, it's what they call a little corkscrew run uh-huh. so it's very mm-hmm. narrow and zippy and so, yeah, it was called Mad Dog, and uh, uh, we, they renamed it for John. We, I think we wrote a letter to the board because they typically don't do that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know since when, but we were told they don't, they don't do that for, for, for people. They don't name it after people. We just wrote a note, a letter saying, you know, we would really like them to consider that. And they did. It was, you know, um, from what I could tell, support, and, and uh, I don't think there was any difficulties or do you know um, and it's the first run we take when we get to that part of the mountain it's on Mount Disney at Sugar Bowl and there's a lovely sort of tribute they have to it on the website mm-hmm. uh, of, the, of the ski resort but it's our first run that we take every single time we're there and, and it's not a green circle <laughs> you know I think when it was Mad Dog um, I, I we joke I think it was teal like not really blue, but not really black, you know, and so intermediate oh, really. slash, mm-hmm. really just because it's it's um, it's narrow and zippy. It's really not, um, uh, so it's I a lot of fun. I think uh, you could go down it, Paul. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, of course, I think sometimes I go down there and I've got tears in my eyes. And a lot of times I go down there now and it's I just smile because it just makes mm-hmm. me think of him. Mm-hmm. And it's just... It really is just this fun, zippy run. Um, so it's hard not to have a smile on your face when you're going down it. But I, I think about him all the time when I go down mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts, Helen, for the listeners of this podcast? We have, like, there's medical students and residents and AIM members and your colleagues in ASP and yeah. program directors? You know, I, I, um, I think when, when you are really, when a person's really down, like I, like I felt after, after John died, it's really hard to see the future. It's really hard to think about the future. And um, all I can say is um, you have to hang in there, you know, and I think Seeing someone like a counselor really helped us. I think um, kind of taking things day by day really helped us, which is hard. I am sometimes a very impatient person in terms of that kind of planning um, and wanting to get results. And so I think um, thinking about patience, even though I can I can acknowledge it's really hard to accept it. Um, we have a, a very good friend, a couple who lost same child, who lost their firstborn to cancer when he was three. And I remember talking to them when John died, and, and, and he said, um, you know, your memories will go from sort of this sheer grief and sadness to, to remembering a lot of the really wonderful times and have you know, a more, sort of more proportional smiles mm-hmm. <laughs> um, than, than uh, sorrow. Um, 
or grief. And I think that's actually true. Not that there's still not moments of sorrow or grief, but there's a lot of happiness that we can remember too. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to see when you're way down there. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think um, just to remind people that that feeling is possible. And um, for me, I think it would have been really hard to go through it alone. So any friends, family, um, anyone you're close to, I think if you know of somebody that's going through something, it's just being there. I think it's just being there to be with them. Um, that you may not know exactly what it's like to go through what they've gone through. And you shouldn't have to just to have some empathy and just to be there for people. Well, thank you so much for being willing to talk about John. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for listening to this podcast, everyone. Leading into this podcast, that was Paradise, originally written and performed by Coldplay, which in this version is performed by the Autumn Film. And exiting this podcast, you'll be hearing Paradise, performed live in Buenos Aires by Coldplay. Thanks everyone and have a great day.